Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, it's Hillary here. Just a quick note, this series does deal with a lot of tough subject matter that may be difficult for some listeners. So please keep this in mind when and where you choose to listen to these episodes. The Griggs family are gathered together watching TV when a news report comes on detailing the horrific day Christian was shot. But something feels different. To Tony, what he's seen on the news doesn't accurately depict what he saw that day. Last episode, we took you through Pat Chisenhall's voluntary interview with law enforcement and his reenactment of the day in question. On this episode, we will not only examine the crime scene, but also dive into the medical examiner's report, which calls the Chisenhall's version of events into question. I'm Hillary Burton Morgan, and this is true crime story, it couldn't happen here. Hi guys, it's Hillary Burton Morgan here with Dan, Poe, and Andrew. So shortly after the shooting of Christian Griggs, Obviously, the story breaks out on local news, and Tony and his family catch the story as it airs, and something doesn't seem quite right. It was amazing that the next day, after the shooting, we were home. My mom, Dolly, I were all in the bonus room, we had the TV on, and the story came up on the news. And we were just astounded when we saw the photographs of the crime scene. The window had been bashed and pushed in, and the first thing my mom said was, that didn't look like that when we were there. And I was like, no, it didn't. But I didn't think much of that. I didn't know whether they were cleaning up, moving things around, but the scene had been altered. 
they saw in the news story that the front window that had been broken was pushed in pretty far. And their memory of when they were at the scene was that the part of the window was pushed in, but not to the extent that it was shown on the news stories. It looked to him like the entire scene had been altered considerably from when he arrived there as the first person on scene. Now, we already discussed Pat's retelling of what transpired that day, but these photos are being released and shown on the news, and things aren't adding up with Tony and Dolly. You know, what they're seeing on the news, that doesn't reflect what they saw on that day. And so I want to talk about these crime scene photos. And for people who may not have seen this episode of our show, let's just describe some of what we saw in these pictures. It's from the porch and it's the front of the house, the window that Pat Chisenhall said Christian was coming through. It's a double hung window. And these are the same windows Tony saw in the news report. But to him, they look drastically different. And so when I first saw this crime scene photo, my natural assumption is like, oh, Christian broke the window. So Christian must have also knocked all these plants down and made this big violent mess. And it looks bad, you guys. Like it looks like something really bad happened on this porch. That he trashed the porch. And it was only later when it was explained to us that EMTs are the ones that threw the table off the porch into hedges that line the side of the house. And they're the ones that knocked over all the plants and made the big mess as they were working on Christian in the corner of the porch. Right. They were trying to make space to get everything and the gurney and everything up onto it. So they cleared the space by throwing this large side table off the porch and all the plants crashed and smashed underneath it. But for anybody who's seen perhaps this picture or footage of this on the news, they don't have that context. Nope. It so looks it, like somebody came up and trashed it. Andrew, what do you see from this picture? Like if you were law enforcement, what would you be testing in this picture? I would be looking for fingerprints. I would be looking for whether or not the gap was sufficient to provide a sight line for Christian being shot through the window from where Pat says he shot him. So does that gap connect to that? I would also be looking for bullet holes, any other fragments that might have occurred. Blood. And that's important to highlight there. There is no blood, you know? Is it worth DNA testing to the window to see, you know, who's been interacting with it? Well, fingerprint testing is number one. I don't see any of the, there's a black powder and you dust for fingerprints. You've probably seen it in CSI. We've certainly seen it at real crime scenes with them doing it. That's one of the one things from TV that is real. When they do the fingerprinting, it looks the same. But I don't see any fingerprinting done. I don't believe any was. We have a record that they dusted for prints on the exterior screen that was on the window at one point and that was removed and tossed onto the bushes. So they dusted that screen for fingerprints and found nothing. They found no fingerprints on the frame of that screen. On the frame of the screen. And I don't see any record that they actually dusted the window itself for prints. However, these photos are probably taken prior to any processing of the crime scene. But again, there's no record. that they, sure. The only thing they've said in their report is that they dusted the screen for prints. They never right. indicated they so, dusted so the they're looking for prints. For, you would look for fingerprints. You would look for the sight line between the gap in the window and Pat Chisholm's presumed shooting position and perhaps blood. Yeah, I mean, if Christian was shot the way that Pat Chisholm says he was, he would have been shot while hanging basically half in 
the room and half outside. But there's not enough. I mean, shot. let's say half in, half out even makes it seem like there's a bigger opening. Right. But I mean, I'm just saying for Pat's story is that he sort of halfway was climbing in. There's no bullet holes through the blinds. There's no bullet holes through the drapes. There's no bullet holes in the wall around the windows. Well, day of the event, we don't know the bullet trajectories. You know, we don't know any of that stuff. So just looking at these pictures, this looks like a violent encounter. You know, the broken window is obvious. But we've already heard from Tony Griggs that when he arrived at the scene, it was serene and he didn't notice anything wrong as he stood there at the front door and was like knocking. And then Dolly says the same thing. I just started to survey the area thinking like, what in the world happened? And so on the front porch, there's a little, um, looks like a patio table, a very small one with two little chairs, had a, uh, uh, like a flower pot on it that was turned over. The blinds were closed. There was no broken glass. No window was open. The only thing that was open was like, um, someone had opened the window at the top. Like we have the, those windows that you can pull in. Yeah. And so it was open about like that at the top on the, the side where the door is at. Yeah. But the blind was closed on it. And even Dolly and Christian's sister arrived at the scene fairly quickly and were able to see the window, see the porch, see the surrounding area. And so all of the members of Christian's family saw the crime scene before camera trucks showed up. And then that footage was later put on the news and they all could look at it and be like, wait a second. The window that I'm seeing in this crime scene photo is very pushed in. You know, this is incredibly noticeable. Like if you walked up on a house and saw this, you would be alarmed right away. You'd think somebody had pushed through that. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so let's go to the next photograph. Poe, what are we seeing here? So this photograph is supposed to be Pat Chesenhall's point of view. He's looking square at the front door and the two windows and the sofa that is in front of those windows. And he's standing behind a second sofa that's on the other side of the living room, facing the windows and facing the first sofa. What it illustrates is that his story is that he shot from quite a distance. Andrew, how far would you say this distance is? Uh, I would say that's about 18 feet. And so he is shooting through a gap. From the look of this photo, if the shades are down, and the fact that the windows are not broken on the bottom or there's any other stray bullet holes there, it would be actually impossible to have shot him from the point of view that Pat says he shot him from. From across the room, facing those yeah, windows. 18 feet away. Now, unless, like you said, Christian had already climbed pretty much into the room, then you're shooting straight on Christian standing inside the room. Well, Which now, the day of, that is their narrative. The, yes. the day of the narrative, Pat says that Christian is already in, you know, he's climbed halfway through the window, presumably. So some or most of his torso is being exposed and he's sort of over the couch a little bit. All right, let's take a look at what law enforcement actually has and what they're dealing with that day. You know, that day, they know there's multiple gunshot wounds. They know that they have this broken window. They have the shooter's POV. And then we also have a picture of this collection of shells that's tucked behind a living room chair in the same room. And we will definitely talk about those shells in our next episode. So these pictures are taken. The crime scene is processed. We know who is allowed onto the crime scene. And it does seem pretty weird to me. So who shows up and is allowed to just walk onto the crime scene the day of the killing? Well, usually at a crime scene, there's an officer who's in charge of recording who's coming in and out of that scene. And so in the crime scene log, we do see that Pat Chisholm's son is listed. And I believe he worked as a state correctional officer and was a volunteer with the Angier Fire and Rescue. 
So he did have a legitimate job with the county. But I don't know why he would be entering the crime scene in an official capacity. You know, he'd be going in as the son of Pat Chisenhall. We have that file. Hold on. I want to pull it out because I want to see what time it happened. He actually enters twice. Here is the crime scene log here. So the first person on the scene is Hildreth. He gets there at 1110 and he's the lead investigator. And then by 1140, so only like 30 minutes after this crime scene's been taped off, Pat Chisenhall Jr., so Pat's son, is allowed in. And it says the purpose is to secure the dog. So, I mean, is that something that a member of law enforcement could have done or somebody else could have brought the dog out to them rather than let him onto the crime scene? We don't know. At least there's a reason given. And then, let's see. So he's in for six minutes at that point. And then he comes in again at 2.45 p.m., And the reason given is to retrieve medication. They're letting somebody who is connected to the perpetrator, justified or not, in and out of the crime scene before it's been fully investigated. Here's the other thing, to your point about it not being fully processed, is that this log of everybody in and out of the scene is done by 1745. So that's 545 in the evening that day, they only start looking around at 11.10. That's the first time anyone's in. And then by 5.45, everyone's out. Right. Most of the times in this situation, the house would be taped off and obviously Pat and Katie would be forbidden to return there to the house. Or anyone connected with them. Until a more thorough investigation had been completed. Mm Mm-hmm. They did continue to investigate, but they came back several days later. Literally, the church congregation came over and assisted in the cleanup of this crime scene. Like, I can't think of anything more small town to have the people involved in this situation come clean up the crime scene, which is confusing. Well, I mean, people always have to kind of clean up their own crime scenes after it's been processed. Like, if something happens in your house, they don't come and clean your rugs. You have to get that done. That's how it works. But The fact that the church congregation comes and the fact that they let them do it that soon. I mean, the main thing, okay, right. They don't know the exact amount of bullets, but when do you close a crime scene before you know, they know it's more than one. Mm -hmm. How do you close a crime scene where there's a story, whether it's self-defense, not knowing how many bullets were fired and not knowing if you have retrieved the evidence that back up the story? Like they do not know that. It's extraordinary that they turned the crime scene back over to the family that quickly. What you have is a death that's undeniable. You know, it absolutely happened. It happened with witnesses. Even the person who committed the death acknowledged like, yes, I'm responsible for this thing. But it was self-defense. In fact, at first, it was immediately just like taken with no grain of salt. Immediately, they run down to patches and halls parishioners and they're like yeah he had to do it it was terrible it's terrible that's it there's almost a hope from the griggs that there's actually an investigation happening and so it wouldn't necessarily be alarming that the windows pushed in further until later when they realize like wait a second you're not going to prosecute like you're not going to push this then it's like hold on everything snaps into focus 
are you going off of these crime scene photos? Like, how are you making this decision? Christian's family seemed to be the lone voice for a while saying, this isn't right. I don't believe this narrative. I guess their natural assumption must be like, well, this is being investigated. My son is a victim. And it is not until later that it dawns on them, hold on, we're not being treated like victims. My son is not being viewed as a victim. Dolly says, this is crazy. Like they're talking about my son and I know my son and none of this is his behavior. And suddenly the way he's being painted and the way the story is being portrayed is not only counter their own feelings, but even to Tony's own experience. Just couldn't understand it. Just couldn't put it together. Who was shooting? One of the police reports said that it was a homicide. But Pat Chisenhall and Katie Chisenhall were the victims. The victim of a homicide, to my knowledge, never survives. We knew that there was no way that Christian was trying to break into their home <laughs> because Christian's never done anything like that before. This was a narrative that they put out there. You, you're talking about a young black man being violent and going into someone's home, and it's an interracial marriage. What's the first thing that's going to come to your mind? He's justified. He should have got shot. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. 
In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the 14th of October, the autopsy is conducted, and that's just two days after Christian's death. And the chief medical examiner, Dr. Lauren Scott, states that Christian had a total of six gunshot wounds. One is found in Christian's left shoulder. The other is in his left abdomen. But then the other four gunshot wounds are found in his back. And... Dr. Lawrence Scott reports that the bullets traveled at a sharp upward angle. And so because of this trajectory of these shots, she hypothesizes that Christian must have been parallel to the ground and the shooter was likely standing up when these four shots to the back were fired. And so she pronounces the cause of death to be multiple gunshot wounds to the back with one of the bullets severing Christian's spine and like instantly paralyzing him. So this autopsy report presents very big red flags, you know, and it raises a lot of questions because it counters what Pat Chisholm said happened. But the Griggs family, they're not aware of the specifics of this autopsy until January. This happened in October. So they don't know any of this till January. And they're just seeing what is reported on the news like everyone else. They finally meet with Detective Armstrong, who comes over to their home, and he tells them, sorry, there's not enough evidence to support a murder charge or any charges against Pat Hall, really. And that the shots indicated that Christian was shot in the back while bent over attempting to enter a window, which is consistent with the Hall story. But it's in direct conflict with Dr. Lauren Scott's report. We're put into a whole pattern and uh, we're looking for the DA or the sheriff to contact us and tell us what the way ahead is. And we hear nothing. And then Detective Armstrong shows up one evening and I, I felt totally disrespected. It almost seemed as though he was on his way home from work. He just wanted to kind of drop by and drop the news off to you. You know, uh, he came here to our home. He sat down with my wife and I, had an additional gentleman with him whom he never introduced, uh, and proceeded to tell us that Mr. Chisenhall was an upright standing citizen in the community and that Christian was on his porch. You know, and this would kind of be like Castle Doctrine, that when Chisenhall started shooting, there was no break in his shooting. So therefore, it was a justified clean shoot. I was irate. It can't be a clean shooting if you have two shots in the front and four in the back from different angles. So you can't tell me that it was a repetitive single shooting. 
I asked him, had he even been to the crime scene? Because the things that he was saying made no sense. You know, Christian was on the pool. This is how he said it. The boy was on Chisholm Hall's porch. Chisholm Hall is a good guy in the community, an upstanding citizen in the community. And I'm saying not, not so upstanding that he shot my son in the back. And so this is why we knew we had to dig into this case. Pat's story, that now law enforcement is definitely saying, like, oh, we believe Pat, is that Christian came through the window and he shot him. But when Christian was found, he's on the other side of the porch face down. So what does that tell us? They would have had to drag him out of that window if they shot him all those many times because he was paralyzed by one of them. So he's laying in the corner on his stomach far from the window on the porch. There's no way that he would have been shot in the back, like shot in the front, slumps over in that window. The bullets then hit him four times in the back. And then how's his body get in the corner on his stomach? He's paralyzed. He's about to die and he can't move. They're interpreting the Emmys report about the trajectory as what she's saying. She's saying his back was parallel to the ground. Now, that could mean he was lying flat on the ground or that he was bent over, you know, from the waist. If he was standing and then leaning forward, his torso would be parallel to the ground. Right. So law enforcement is interpreting that as he was climbing back out of the window when he was shot. So he pushes in shoot him twice in the front. He slumps over in that halfway through the window thing. So his back is now revealed because his head's literally like... On the couch. On the couch, like down and revealing his back as he's slumped on the windowsill. And then four shots get fired in his back. But at that point, he's in the window. He can't be anywhere but the window if this is the scenario. How's he get out of the window onto his stomach in the corner? How many feet? Five feet? or more from that window on the porch. Right. And remember, we talked about these crime scene photos. There was no blood. The report also says that one of the bullets cut his spinal cord. So he would have been paralyzed. So if he was in the window when he was shot, he couldn't have gotten himself to the corner of the porch face down. We've talked about this so many times, and it still doesn't make any sense. Basically, any shot to the back Mm -hmm. is not self-defense. So Tony and Dolly Griggs get the impression that something is very, very wrong. And we have a soundbite from Tony about calling the district attorney himself. He's his child's only advocate right now. I spoke with the district attorney, Vernon Stewart, and I say, well, Christian was shot in the back. Why isn't this man hasn't been charged? He said, well, I can't just charge a man for shooting somebody in the back. And I say, well, under what pretenses can you tell me it's acceptable? to shoot a man in the back. And his response was, I'm not going to fuss with you. Do they give you a reason why they're not going to press charges? We found out because Pat Chisholm said that Christian tried to break into their home. They were going to try to use the castle doctrine in Christian's case. The self-defense story here of, I'm going to use the castle doctrine. My home was threatened. Someone was coming in and threatening me, and so I have the right to shoot them. It is important to mention that North Carolina is a Second Amendment state, and guns are a huge part of the culture there. I lived there. I had a gun in my home when I lived there. So this idea of the Castle Doctrine, it's not far-fetched, you know? Protecting your home, protecting your family, that is something that makes sense to a lot of people. Yeah, one of the things that we definitely wanted to talk about in the town was this story centers around guns and it does center around 
the castle doctrine and the right to defend yourself. And these are the questions that this story raised. And so we definitely wanted to speak to the people in town to get their opinions on these. I carry guns 100% of the time, you know. It's just for protection. That's all it's for, you know. I never come across anyone like that. I hope I'll never have to come across anyone to use a gun, you know what I mean? Now, I, I'd rather talk a situation out and walk away from it than have to pull the gun out and use it, or have anyone pull it out and use it on me, you know. I'd rather do that than anything else, so. So it's not the first choice, it's... Last choice. Using a gun is the last choice to be, you know. A lot of times, I think you should be able to walk away from a situation than anything else, you know. That's the last thing you want to do to hurt someone or you get hurt in the process or anything like that. You know, say, you don't want to get hurt nobody. You don't want nobody to hurt you. But you will protect you and your family. That's everyone. Anyone going to do that. There's that word family again. Protect you and your family. Yes. Pat Hall states over and over again that protecting his daughter, his daughter's terror, there's a lot of emphasis put on what Katie is feeling and his desire to protect her, which is totally understandable, especially if your daughter's in the process of leaving her partner, who you both feel threatened by. And so hearing people say, I have to protect my family, I have to protect my family, white families are given the ability to do that. They are given coverage by the Castle Doctrine. We just heard from a black man in North Carolina who says that he carries a gun for the very same reason, but would he be granted the same grace that Pat Chisenhall is granted if it were his family? Right. I think that's a good point because we spoke to black people on the street. We spoke to white people on the street, and I felt that almost everybody we spoke to had guns, and they all felt that it was their right to protect themselves and their families. With those guns? With those guns. They would have every right to use them if they felt that their life or their family's safety was at risk. But all the people we spoke to were also very responsible. They all said this should be a last resort. I don't want to find out. I don't want to be in that position where I have to use my gun. And he's talking about de-escalation, verbal de-escalation. And the proximity of guns to a problem obviously makes the likelihood of death or seriously bodily harm, makes it skyrocket, you know? If Pat Chisenhall didn't have guns in his home, this domestic fight would have still occurred, but Christian's death wouldn't have happened. I just still have trouble wrapping my head around how it goes from being a verbal argument on Tuesday to death on Saturday. But I mean, that's what this entire series is about. You know, it's unraveling the yarn ball and trying to figure out where everything fits because it still doesn't all these years later. But when we look at the medical examiner's report, I mean, I know we aren't lawyers or law enforcement, but does the Castle Doctrine still apply? I mean, from my understanding, no. I mean, it's one thing if somebody's actively breaking into your home, but if somebody is leaving your home, if somebody is retreating, if somebody is moving away, you are no longer in danger. Your home is no longer in danger. I think the interesting thing, again, about the Castle Doctrine is that it's saying that you don't have to prove that you're afraid for your life because if somebody's breaking into your house, you're presumed to be afraid for your life and can take defensive action, including killing someone. Now, what's interesting about this Castle Doctrine, though, was this was pretty new. This Castle Doctrine only passed in North Carolina while Christian was in Iraq. And so while he was deployed overseas, this legislation was passed. He comes home and very quickly becomes a victim of it. 
And, you know, it's a great defense for Pat Chisholm because there is damage to the property. There is a domestic disagreement that's happening. I mean, all signs point to Castle Doctrine can play here, but it's the shots in the back. Yeah. You know, it's this medical examiner's report. It's her discomfort with the way this case is being played out, which prompts her to write further letters and affidavits because something is clearly wrong here. Well, we're going to further dig in the next episode. We've gotten Pat's side. We've gotten the Griggs side. We have the medical examiner's report. We have law enforcement saying there's no there there. We can't prosecute. And so when these new players like Lee Denny and Robbie Jessup enter into the equation, all of a sudden the narratives start falling apart. And that is where we're going to go next week. That's it for this week's episode of True Crime Story. It couldn't happen here. But be sure to join us next week as we dive deeper into the Christian Griggs case. What the heck is a private investigator? That's always like the big one. I'm a private investigator. We see it in the movies so often, and it's like, what do they do? Join us next week as we continue to roll up our sleeves and dig in. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't watched Sundance TV's True Crime Story, It Couldn't Happen Here, you can catch all of our episodes streaming on AMC+. For more information about this and other cases we've covered, follow at ICHHstories on Instagram. True Crime Story It Couldn't Happen Here was produced by Mischief Farm in association with Bungalow Media and Entertainment, Authentic Management Productions, and Figdonia in partnership with Sundance TV. Executive producers are me, Hillary Burton Morgan, Liz DeCessory, Robert Friedman, Mike Powers, and Meg Mortimer. Producers are Maggie Robinson-Katz and Libby Siegel. Our audio engineer is Brendan Dalton, with original music by Philip Ridiotis. We want to say a special thank you to everyone who participated, but especially the families impacted by our cases. girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.